1: This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello, and welcome to World's Lights, show 124. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Spring's coming here now. Thank, thank you. It has been a, ah man, what a horrible cold winter this has been. But first few days now we've had some nice sunshine. Still freezing nuts off on the night time when I'm on night shift. Oh, but through the day it's been lovely. So first signs and the snowdrops are out as well. So that is really nice. So, I hope everyone is say, fine, and dandy. Give a heads up what's coming in today's show. We have guest editorial by none other than Mer Lafferty. Just talking about fanzines and her experience on fanzines. Again, it's all for this run up to the Hugo Awards. We have, this is the show that brings you Starship Sova's interrogations. This week, the Starship, or this month, Starship Sova is interrogating Gene Wolfe. Main fiction today is, the Nebula nominee for Best Short Story this year is Brighticle by Will McIntosh. Then we have a new fact article starting, a new little series starting by Cheryl Morgan, Observation Deck. Cheryl Morgan is throughout the year going to be dropping by and going to quite a a number of science fiction conventions. And just to really hook up with Cheryl and to get a feel of of the atmosphere and what's happening at these conventions... So this month we're caught up with Cheryl, and she was in the Pecon, which is the science fiction one in Dublin. So you can listen to myself and Cheryl chat about that. So first off, very proud to have Miss Mer Lafferty as guest editorial.
2: Hello, Starship Silver listeners. Tony asked me to uh, record this for you. I wrote this up on my blog. My name is Mer Lafferty. I'm a podcaster and author. Title is Hugos and Podcasts. Starship Sofa, the fantastic fiction audio podcast, is campaigning for a Hugo nomination for Best Fanzine. I'd link to a bunch of blogs discussing this, but Cheryl Morgan lists them nicely, and Tobias Buckel also has some good thoughts. I can hear the dinosaurs grumbling now. Or they will when they hear about this in their paper fanzines in about a month. Ooh, was I mean there? Maybe. Maybe I'm just honest. I met some wonderfully charming, I'm not sarcastic, they really were, older fans at Worldcon last year, but one of whom talked about the internet as if it were the great beast coming to get us all. Or perhaps the little beast not even worth a bother. He had a paper fanzine and proudly showed it to me. He had to show me how to read it, which was either a gross insult to my intelligence or a gross insult to his fanzine that should have been easy enough to read without instructions. I know these people built fandom and science fiction conventions, and I'm very grateful. They should be respected and their contributions remembered. But the fact that these are science fiction fans and writers... Fearing new technology just kills me. And they don't just fear it. They insult it and those of us who are trying to create new ways of storytelling with it. They pride themselves on using typewriters to write about the future, eschewing computers altogether, creating a cloud of irony that hangs over Des Moines right now and pollutes the city daily. And someone is going to bitch at me that some people prefer typewriters, and that's not a bad thing. Blah, blah, blah. I know this. What I'm against is holding tight to your buggy whip and going, la, 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 when someone drives by in a 2010 Mini Cooper. People say short fiction is dying. Tell that to Escape Pod, Pseudopod, Podcastle, Drabblecast, Variant Frequencies, Tor.com, and Starship Sofa discussion of science fiction thrives in Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, The Dragon Page, Writing Excuses, and many more. A story is a story, whether it's delivered in a podcast, or on paper, or written on the side of a mountain. So hell yes, a podcast should be eligible for a major science fiction award. Over 24,000 fans listen to Escape Pod every week. I'd say that makes it a force in science fiction short publishing, right? So yes, go listen to Starship Sofa, and if you think it's utterly awesome, give it a nod for Best Fanzine. While you're at it, think about Escape Pod or Variant Frequencies, or any of the other fine fiction podcasts for Fanzine or Semi-Prozine. Writing Excuses, Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, or even my own I Should Be Writing could be eligible for Best Related Work. And of course, don't forget the stories they put out. Some of the paying zines could produce Hugo-worthy short fiction. James Patrick Kelly's podcast Burn won the Nebula Award. Time for the Hugos to catch up. And yes, it was specified that the podcast was the winning medium, not the print book. Think about the future. That's what we do in this business, right? And by the way, I mentioned Tor.com, and I'm self-serving, damn it. But it's an excellent fiction podcast. I can say that without ego, as I only produce it. I don't choose the stories. And as for I should be writing mention, totally self-serving. My name is Mer Lafferty, and you can find out more about me at Merverse.com.
1: There you go, thank, Mur. thank you so much for that. Closing dates for nominations are the 13th of March, so probably next time you listen to me, the closing date, that'll be it. It's be finished. We'll just have to wait and see if Starship's over made it to the nomination round. I just want to thank everyone all the guest editorials that I've had over these past few weeks just to kinda you know boost a little bit of Starship Sova's profile. It's been fantastic. I really appreciated all the work that everyone's done for that. You know, what can I say? Let's just fingers crossed to you know we to get on the nomination round would be fantastic. The first podcast. Do you know what I mean? Let's worry about other things later on, but you know, just to get there would be great. And if not, do you know what I mean? It I'm sure all this what we've kind of all the kind of hard work everyone's done has put the name of Starship Over in front of many, many more people, which is a great thing, you know? Now I know I kinda we're harping on about that and I get all excited about the Hugos and everything like that, but I kinda of, I really just thought I better mention this just to kinda of, you know, bring a little bit back down to earth with a bit of a bump and you know, just to kinda of remember, you know, there is other people going and there is other like hardship and things like that going on, you know, you know, in the kind of bigger world. And it's just, give a, a nice shout-out. Please, everyone, just, you know, wish him luck. Peter Watts, if you remember, Peter Watts, eh, about, I think it's in, probably in the 17th, somewhere around that, of this month, Marsh is going to court because there was a bit some sort of fracas or some sort of incident at a border crossing between America and Canada. He was involved in that, and now he's got a court appearance. And, you know what I mean, it, it just sounds horrible what he's going through. And, you know, I just want to... Pete, if you listen to this, you know what I mean, and honestly, my heart goes out here. You know, I'm honestly thinking about you quite a lot lately. And I just know, you know, mention it now, everyone else will be just thinking about you and wishing you the best for that court appearance, you know what I mean. Just hope everything goes fine for you. Do you know what I mean? Because I know you've it's been like a crappy few months. And like I say, I'm just wishing you all the best to get through that and just uh Make sure you know, and please come on the show. And you know, hopefully, it's all forgotten about, and it all gets over and sorted and done with. You come on the show and you can talk about it because just what you've been through, it must be horrible. Do you know what I mean? I can't imagine it. Do you know what I mean? kind of bury, you know, most people know I kind of bury my head in the sands, but you know, Pete's got to face this reality, and it's not a very nice one, do you know what I mean, at all. So, Pete, I'm just wishing you all the best luck. You know what I mean? I know everyone else will be as well. So, fingers crossed. I think it's 17th of March, you say you go up in court. Just wishing you all, all the best. So, we we'll come to Starship Sova Interrogations. And I'm going to play this a little bit slightly different because, you know, there is a catch. Yes. <laughs> Starship Sova Interrogations is those 15 questions that I put to... Lucius Shepard, last week. Well, now I put these 15 questions, the same 15 questions to Gene Wolfe. And the idea is as well, you know, I'm going to play these every month on the show, you know, it's like a little fact article. But I also talk afterwards, you know what I mean? It's not often you get a chance to talk to Gene Wolf. do you know what I mean? So, hey, I'm going to... <laughs> imagine I'm trying to write have you. I've got, to, I've got to go, yeah, but Gene, what about, you know, I want to stay on that phone as long as possible. So, and I'm not joking, when I kind of, I phone up, Gene Wunfeld did it all by telephone. And, you know, that's what I'm discovering now is the beauty of it. You just phone them up and I can record it with me, the, the way the kind of setup is now. And it's excellent. And, I, you know, after those 15 questions, you could I could even tell in Gene's answers that, you know, is that it is that. And I think he says that at one point. Oh, that went over too quick. And it was just a great excuse just to talk to the, the man, you know, and talk about his work and just, and he was even asking me questions. So the idea is, this is the idea, what I'm going to start doing. And it's, and forgive us if you think this is wrong, but you know, the idea is to put the 15 questions on this main show. Then what I'll do, if there's any talking afterwards, that's going to go in the sanatorium, just to say thank you to all the sanatorium people that are kind of supporting the show. Cause honestly, it's, you know what I mean? It's the kind of bedrock that makes a show go, that keeps it going. Do you know what I mean? I need funding for it. And, you know, that's certainly a, a help there. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, Put all these interrogations that I go right throughout. And I've got loads actually lined up. You know, I could play them once a week there now, but I don't, you know, I don't want to run out of them eventually, because I'm sure I'd probably run out of writers before I ran out of kind of enthusiasm for it. So what I'm going to do this time is, though, so I'm going to play, because this one's a great one. Well, I'm not in. I should have said that. This one's a good one. All the rest ones are naff ones. No, but this is like a really nice one. You know, it's Gene Wolf, And I thought, hell, I'll play the whole lot and you can have a listen to it, you know. And hopefully, you know, the next ones that come up, you might think, well, you know, 2 50 a month, you know, give me shoes, you- trying, he's trying his hardest, I'll give him two fifty a month and I can get these as well, so there's going to be like extras in there you know, I'm going to play this extras, and like I say, I talked to, I've done a Pat Cadigan one, and Pat Cadigan, wow it was, honestly, she was just taking you back, you know, talking about Heinlein and he was calling her a girl Friday we got all talking like that, so that's going to go in the sanatorium, so I'm not going to play that one, you know, I'll play the 15 questions the interrogation, but not the kind of, the extras, you know, that's going to go in the sanatorium, and just like I say it's blatantly you know i'm trying to entice people to come in there and you know pay £2.50 but it's also just to say thank you very much for everyone that's still in there you know and and, and kind of supporting the show you know i've had people in there that's been supporting since it started you know and i think it's more, you need a bit more thank yous and majors waffling on so this is kind of one of the ways and eventually, I'm going to actually start just having a chat with Larry as well. Because Larry's, you know, he's got some baggage in his years. You know what I mean? He's got some history behind him. And Larry, you know, like a talk to Larry. Be like a dad talking to a like grandfather. You know, the the stuff he could talk about, Larry. So, what I want to do as well is put them in the sanatorium show. But, anyways, getting back to Gene Wolfe. Got this is the, I'm just going to play the full thing. And, you know, it goes on for 45 minutes. You know what I mean? Like you see it. And I'm not joking, the hairs on the back of my neck were standing up when, you know what I mean, you kind of, you listen to this guy and he's, you know, he's kind of frail voice, you know what I mean, and wow, but the things he's wrote and the things he's done, do you know what I mean, it's just, and I mean, I, honestly, you know what I mean, you, you get some kind of highs in your, in your kind of little, I'm not going to say career of this, but, you know, your working kind of day of this Starship Sover. and this was certainly a high for me, definitely. So this is Starship Sover Interrogations. Gene Wolfe. Gene Wolfe, are you a science fiction writer?
3: Yes, I am. Uh, I write science fiction. I belong to the science fiction and fantasy writers of America. And uh, certainly I'm called a science fiction writer. So why not? Tell me about your childhood. Certain respects, looking back on it, certain respects, it was very strange. But I guess everybody can say that. I think everybody had a, a very strange childhood in, in some respect. Uh, I was an only child. I was born in 1931, which was when the Depression was about as, as bad as it ever got. You know, it was when it was really, really bad. And uh, my parents moved from place to place to place as my father did whatever he had to do to get work and, and support his family. And so I grew up, well, I didn't grow up. As a, a young child, I lived in half a dozen different uh, towns and half a dozen different states before the family finally uh, settled in Texas. And when they settled in Texas, I was probably oh seven possibly eight, more likely seven, I think. My mother had been virtually disowned by her family. Uh, so there were no relatives. Uh, I had no contact with my mother's relatives at all. Uh, my father's relatives were in Ohio, uh, which was a long way from Houston, Texas, where we lived. It was a much longer way in those days that it would be today of course uh, travel then was uh, practically all by train uh, or by automobile and uh, so they were remote once in a rare while uh, we went back to my grandmother Wolf's uh, my grandmother Wolf was a woman who had uh, divorced her husband in a little rural American town back around the turn of the century. And she was branded, you know, she was the town divorcee. And uh, so that was kind of interesting, too. And she had the only house that I have ever actually been in that had a genuine, no bullshit, uh, secret room in it. Uh, it had been a station on the Underground Railway and there was a secret room behind the parlor closet where they had, would hide the escaped slaves. As in those days, the escaped slaves, they would try and get them up to Canada, which had no slavery. Because the U.S. went through a period where escaped slaves were arrested and were returned to their masters, even if they got up into Ohio or Michigan or Illinois or
1: whatever. So that was odd from that standpoint. How did you get started in science fiction genre?
3: I have always written the same way. I just write whatever happens to appeal to me, to come to me. And uh, a lot of it is science fiction. And that's what happened with me. I, I think the first story I ever sold, as opposed to the first story I ever wrote, was a ghost story. Yes, it was. Uh, but uh, some of my early writing was science fiction, and some of my writing has always been science fiction. And when it's science fiction, then I market it as science fiction.
1: Which single science fiction writer most influenced your own style? That's, that's
3: a, a very tough question to decide. Uh, I'm going to uh, say Theodore Sturgeon. Uh the first book I read of science fiction, the first science fiction I ever read, uh as opposed to reading things like Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers in the comic strips, you know, the Sunday papers and so on, uh, was the pocketbook of science fiction. And the first book first pardon me, the first story I read in that book was The Microcosmic God by Theodore Sturgeon. And uh that blew me away. That that put me into science fiction to stay. And uh, I remember when Killdozer came out as a magazine story and astounding. Uh Reading and rereading that story and rereading it. it, it fascinated me. Not because I was trying to learn anything from it, because at that time I wasn't trying to learn anything from what I read, but because the story just fascinated me. And I read and reread and reread it. I did the same thing, by the way, with uh, H.G. Wells' uh, The Island of Dr. Morrow.
1: Which book by another author do you wish you had written?
3: Uh, Probably The Lord of the Rings. But, uh, you know, on Tuesday it would be something else. Uh, There, There are so many good books, and so many books that I envy other writers. Uh, which doesn't mean that I would strangle them and bury them under the cellar floor to uh, be able to claim their work as my own, although in a few cases I've been a little bit
1: tempted. What would be the one question you would ask a science fiction writer?
3: How do you teach writing? How do you teach other people to write science fiction? Or how do you teach other people to write period? Uh, What techniques have you
1: found that have really
3: worked for you?
1: For what reason do you write science fiction in preference to other classes of literature?
3: I think the answer is that it is the only class uh, which mixes imagination with reality in the way that it does. Uh, science fiction can give us very imaginative settings and does, uh, and uh, very imaginative events and does. Uh, uh, at the same time, uh, maintaining plausibility in a way that fantasy and horror do not. That's as close as I can come. Uh, that doesn't mean that I have anything particular against fantasy. I've written a great deal of it, or that I've got anything particular against
1: horror. I've written quite a bit of that, too. What one aspect of science fiction writing is the most difficult? Maintaining plausibility.
3: I don't think there's any question of that. Uh, there are some times when you, you can kind of cast it aside if you're if you're trying to write uh, oh funny robot stories or something like that uh... you don't have to worry too much about plausibility but when uh... you write important quote unquote important science fiction significant science fiction whatever we want to call it it's absolutely necessary to make it plausible as well as imaginative and It's hard to maintain plausibility in this stuff. Uh, You know, you cannot uh, do the kind of thing that Edgar Rice Burroughs was always doing, uh, having somebody uh, land on an alien planet and meet a beautiful princess in the first hour.
1: Does writing get any easier?
3: Yes, it does, actually. Everybody is supposed to say that it doesn't, that it just gets harder or something like that. But I don't think that's really true. Uh, if uh, if an editor contacts me, somebody that I I've, I've, I know and trust and have done business with and that's it, and says, uh, I'm doing a book, uh, Great Science Fiction, about bees. Can you write me a, a bee story? And I feel like writing church stories then, or I think that I need to write church stories then. Uh, yeah, I could sit down and write him a bee story. Uh, when I was started, I could not have done that.
1: Describe your daily work and dear.
3: That is almost impossible now because the days are all different. I have to take care of my wife, who is is ill and has numerous problems that I won't bother you with. Uh I have to take care of the dog and the bird. I have to clean the house. I have to shovel snow uh, in the winter, as it is now. I have to cut the grass in summer, which I'm hoping to ditch by getting a lawn service, and so on and so forth. And uh, the days when I would spend all morning writing are over with. Uh, maybe forever, maybe just for now. I don't know. But uh, they are. Uh, I write when I can. You know, if I have a chance, say, around 8 o'clock at night to write, then I sit down and write at 8 o'clock. I try and get up around 5 and generally uh, try and get some writing done before my wife wakes up. And as we have seen today, she can wake up any time between five and eleven, let's say.
1: What's the strangest thing you've ever done while researching?
3: Uh, it was getting into Greek. I got the idea for the book that became Soldier of the Mist, and uh, I started it uh, after after having sold my editor on it. I think so only book that I've ever sold my editor on in advance and so he was expecting uh, this novel laid in ancient Greece and I started in thinking that I knew a great deal about ancient Greece and got to maybe page 20 or something like that and discovered that I did not know beans about ancient Greece I needed to know a great deal more then uh I did uh, I needed to have at least a smattering of the language I had none I took Latin in school which is rusted away to nothing I never took any Greek um, and at that point this, this sounds absurd but it's true at that point a teacher of classical Greek moved in across the street and I was I went to her and asked if she would give me private lessons, and she did. And I took some private lessons in Greek and then continued studying on my own and so on and got into this whole area of classical scholarship, which I I don't mean that I am a classical scholar, but I'm somebody who tries to read classical scholars and uh, knows enough background to make some sense out of what they are saying. And also I am a person who has discovered uh, some absurd errors in popular books on ancient Greece and the ancient world. I, I have a book here uh, that shows you or presumes to show you the position of the Greek fleet and the uh, Persian fleet at the Battle of Salamis. And if the Greek fleet had really been where this book says it was, at the time the book says it was there, uh, the whole Battle of Salamis would have gone to the Persians, and the whole history of mankind uh, from that period on would have been utterly different. And uh, here's, here's the book. Here it is in black and white. Dead wrong. Uh, I have a book with a picture of a signet ring. And the caption on the picture says that it shows a crowned king. And if you look at it very carefully, uh, look at the signet, uh, you will see that it, what actually shows is a helmet of the Corinthian type that had a, uh, a human face graved on the visor, if you know what I mean. And probably that helmet was in fact some king's crown but it certainly was not a picture of the king, it was a picture of the helmet and so on and so forth Uh, you find these howlers and you find that the most difficult thing is to find out what nobody knows, what is it that they don't know about ancient Greece Uh, and so on and so forth.
1: I won't bore you with the rest of this. Do you think science fiction as a genre is different from other genres?
3: Well, yes. Each genre is different from the other genres. That's what makes it a genre. Uh, you could say exactly the same thing about horror. You could say the exactly the same thing about westerns. Uh, yes, it is different. They're all different. Uh, if they weren't different, then it wouldn't be such fun to mix them to write, let's say, a science fiction, horror, western, which people have done, and there's no reason not to do it, provided you can do all the stuff. You know, you have to be able to do science fiction, you have to be able to do horror, and you would have to be able to do western well. And if you can't, uh, you better stay away from
1: that one. What do you consider the chief value of science fiction?
3: Oh, there's no question about it. Hope. Hope is what the reader is looking for, although in most cases the reader either doesn't know it or won't admit it. Uh, it's hope that there will be a future and that it will be better or at least different from the one that I'm stuck in now. Uh, I don't think there's any question.
1: Has science fiction ever disappointed you? Oh, certainly.
3: Absolutely. Uh, in the sense that I have read disappointing stories. I have read books, science fiction books, that had uh, glowing reviews. And people were talking about them and all this stuff. And then read the book and thought, oh my gosh, come on, you know,
1: get real. Yeah, yeah, often, often,
3: no question about it.
1: Is there still new ground to be covered in science fiction literature?
3: Uh, Absolutely, absolutely, totally, no question of that either, Um, you know. Are there grand new inventions that nobody has ever thought of waiting to be thought of? Yes. And the way to do it is to try and keep up with science and see what the scientists are doing, what they are looking at, what they're finding out, uh what the their latest theories are and so forth, and extrapolating from them and applying them here and there and so on and so forth, so to speak. Uh, but, uh, then you can look at political developments and what, what, uh, what we are seeing, I think, is, uh, the development of a future that is much more Orwellian than 1984. Uh, Darryl, that's one possibility when we look at, at politics. And uh, 1984 is a great classic science fiction novel, a wonderful novel.
1: Gene Wolfe, thank you very much. Are we at the end already? Oh, my gosh, yes.
3: Okay, thank you. Gene, Alrighty. that was fantastic. No, <laughs> well, I don't think it was fantastic. I. I felt that I was just warming up. <laughs> but,
1: uh, <okay. laughs> no, not the hairs on the back of my neck. There, you know what I, I was loving there because I loved a little bit there when you were talking about the howlers. In you know, like is that something that you, it kind of just gives you a little kick? Just to, you know, if you spot something like an obvious mistake, you know, because you've got this kind of Yes. Is that is it yes. is that something like hitting a sweet spot in golf? Is it? <laughs>
3: yes, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, or baseball. You got the sweet spot in, in baseball, too.
1: Yeah. I thought that was
3: fab, you know what I mean? Hey, it's, a, it's a place where you you hit the ball with the bat, and the bat doesn't vibrate at all in your hands, <laughs> you know? It just...
1: So, just, is, just I'm curious, I everything fitting well for you? You know, like, you personally, are you, is everything still working what it's meant to do, or are you...
3: Well, yeah, uh, you know, my... As I say, I, I can't write at a fixed time anymore, and I can only write when I can find time to do it. But uh, I'm still producing, I hope. I've got uh, The uh, the Sorcerer's House, which is a fantasy novel, uh, coming out in March. And I have another novel, which is not under contract, but it is at my publisher's now uh which is a uh straight near future science fiction novel called Home Fires. And uh I'm working on a third novel, I'm not too deep into it. And so, you know, off we go. And in between when necessary I write uh or, or when pleasant or whatever, I write uh a short story just as I have always done. I wrote one for Gene Raby, uh fairly recently, uh, called The Giant, and uh, I enjoyed that a lot, and I wrote one about a refrigerator from the future called Frost Free, and I enjoyed that a lot. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, it's still fun. It's it's still, uh, it's not something that I just do to make a living or to make money. I enjoy doing it. And that's one of the
1: maybe the greatest reward of writing. I don't know. You know, I was I was when you were talking about, you know, your kind of early stuff as well. I was wondering do you ever go back and reread, you know, like say like, really early short stories. Was it the the grave secret that was your first short story you sold? Would you ever go back oh. and read, you know, like
4: <laughs> Yeah, and
1: it's awful. It's <laughs> awful. Yeah. I, <laughs>
3: Yeah, I, I go back and read those things. Very uh, recently, uh, we put together a uh, uh, Best of Gene Wolfe uh, collection, I believe. Yeah, I know it's been published in England. Uh, Pete Crowther uh, brought out limited edition of it. Yes. And, uh, yeah, you're familiar with that. And so I went back and reread a, a whole bunch of old stories uh to decide what stories I should put in there. And so, yes, I, I certainly do. And there were some I reread that I said, well, gee, I like that story, but I, there's others I like more. And there's some that I didn't reread because I knew it was bad. I had reread it before. <laughs> so uh, don't well, ask me the name those. I won't do it. And... Uh, <laughs> So I, I decided the main contents of, uh, The Best of Gene Wool. And as I say in the book, uh, my agents then insisted that I add A Cabin on the Coast, which was their favorite story. And, uh, then, uh, when Pete Crawford did The Limited, he insisted that I add Christmas Inn, which was his favorite story. So those two are in there. Too, if you get uh, Pete Crossley's edition.
1: I was just looking at your... Um, it was on the actual the Internet Speculative Fiction Database. This is like a database that gets all, mm-hmm. you know, right... The amount of work you've got written, you know, even just like, say, short stories, you know, it takes your, your hand on the mouse a good, good 30 seconds to troll all the way down to, to catch all these stories, you know. And like you say, is that still... You know, you still get the buzz out of writing, you know even to this dear? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Absolutely.
3: Uh, it's, a, it's a thrill to start something new. It's like, you know, you're doing something new and dangerous. Um, I tell classes uh, when I teach uh, science fiction writing or creative writing, which I've done from time to time to time, uh, that a, a novelist is like being a fireman or a soldier. Uh, it's not enough to be brave today and brave tomorrow. You've got to be brave the day after and the day after and the day after because you have to be able to sit down and keep working on that novel even when you feel like, boy, this really sucks or I'm writing myself into a corner or I've got 180 pages and I'm never going to get, uh, you know, out to, to book length with this thing, and so on. And, uh, you've got to keep fighting the, the same monster all the way. And, uh, short stories, you sit down and bang them out in two, three, four days, whatever. And, uh, then you finish it up and say, Wow, this is great. We tell Harlan Ellison sees this. He'll be so jealous. <laughs> You (laughs) know, probably not not true, but (laughs) you tell yourself
1: that. (laughs) I was going to ask you, you know, you actually really kind of answered the question. You know, when you say, like, ideas and, you know, the bees, you know, write a story about bees. I was going to ask you, you know, does the the ideas factory of Gene Wolfe ever dry off? Can you just spin them out? Is it just one of those little gifts? No, it,
3: it it dries up sometimes. Because it, it's easy to do when somebody uh, calls you up and says, uh, write me a chess story or something like that. Uh, because you get the focus there from the editor. And uh, when you don't have that, then you think of all these possibilities. You've got all these possibilities swimming in your head and so uh, it can be hard to settle in uh, and do what and when I do that I start reading other people's short stories and uh, that brings it into focus or you know I, I read somebody's story and it's really good and it's about uh, bears okay and uh, so I think gee that was really nice I bet I could write a bear story And so somewhere along the way, I changed the bears to cows and so on. But uh, eventually, I've got a story. (laughs) Damon Knight taught me this, basically. Damon was my mentor insofar as I ever had a mentor. Uh, Damon's method of writing was writing until he found a story that was full of stuff that he really hated. And then he would fix all the stuff that he really hated, and then he would have a different story, which he would, uh, you know, of course, title and stick his name on, and here it was. And you could never tell from reading Damon's story what the seed story
1: had been, because he changed everything. How did you get to meet Damon Knight? How did I meet him? Yeah, how did you get introduced the first time?
3: Oh, yeah. Well, uh, I had a story in uh, Worlds of If, which was a magazine that we used to have back before at 9. And uh, I got a letter from Lloyd Bigel, Jr. that said uh, you ought to join Science Fiction Writers of America, which is what it was called in those days. And uh, so I joined the Science Fiction Writers of America. And uh, Damon Knight, of course, had started the Science Fiction Writers of America. And he had a notice in the Bulletin of the Science Fiction Writers of America that said that he was editing an original anthology series and uh, wanted to look at stories from members for his original anthology series. So I sent him some stories, and I sold some of them. And I got uh, invited to the Milford Writers' Conference uh, which in those days was, in fact, in Milford, Pennsylvania, which is where it started, and uh, went there, and Damon and Kate ran the Writers' Conference, and uh, I'll tell you, I we had at that time a god-awful, far and away the worst car I have ever owned, this huge, old, rotten uh, station wagon. And I had this invitation to Milford, and Rosemary and I loaded it up with baggage and our four children, and uh, although we may have only had three at that time, and uh, drove to Milford, and we were unloading all this junk, and two guys got out of a car and came to welcome us to the Milford Science Fiction Writers' Conference. And they were Damon Knight and Jack Williamson, And all I could do was
1: stammer. (laughs) Meeting your legends. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely.
3: Uh, These were were people that I had read for years, both of them. men, Men that I had read for years and had enormous respect for both of them. And here they were together at once. And I had never met a writer. Never. I had met people who were were trying to write. Uh, One of them one, was the uh, mother of a boyhood friend. And she would write story after story and send them to the Saturday Evening Post and the Saturday Evening Post would reject them and she would drop them into a drawer. And that was as close as I had ever come to meeting a writer. And here were two famous science fiction writers who I knew were really, really good, both of them, and together. And I was just blown away. Just, as I said, all I could do was gibber.
1: You know, when you were mentioning, like, even going further, like, when you, in your grand's house had this, like, secret compartment. Did that, was that, like, any inspiration there for, like, stories? I, th- and- I think
3: that's been in the back of my mind as I wrote a lot of things. Uh, most recently, uh, the sorcerer's house, uh, which is about a, a very strange magical house. And, uh, my, my grandmother's house to me when I was a kid was a very strange magical house. Uh, for one thing it had, uh, well it had obviously the secret room. It had, uh, strange rooms in the attic. It had a cellar that was actually divided into several different cellars uh, with different entrances and so on. And it was an old, old house uh, by American standards, I realized by English standards, probably a pretty modern house. <laughs> but it had probably been built somewhere like eighteen forty some some such data set. And uh, to me, it was a far older house than any I had ever seen. And then when we were we were in Logan, Ohio, which is where my grandma lived, uh, we would go and visit my aunt Marie, who is my father's sister, his only living sibling, and she was married to my uncle Joe, who was this huge huge man and uh, like a, a a football player, you know a lineman or something like that. Uh, and, and you would go to their house and they had servants which otherwise were only seen in movies by me and they would have like a houseman and a cook and uh, that was unbelievable to me and then you opened the back door of their house and instead of going out into the backyard uh you went into a place where there were rows of cages and there were human beings locked in the cages and, uh, you know, I was a little kid, and this was just awe-inspiring, you know. The thing is, see, my Uncle Joe was a county sheriff, and his house was actually the front of the county jail, and uh, in back were the cells who were occupied by the, the prisoners in the county jail, and the servants, uh, the cook and the, the uh, husband Were trustees uh, who got to get out of their cells on the uh, provided that they behaved themselves and cooked or served. And if they didn't like that, then they could go back into their cells and serve out the rest of their sentence.
1: I didn't know where that was going, you know, when you said there's loads of humans in cells. I was thinking, am I listening to the right interview? Yeah, that was a great story, that. Yeah, yeah.
4: You
3: know, I had no idea what was going on, you know, as I say I was a little kid. I had no idea what was going on until later, and uh, this just
1: you know it is like an amazing thing, like a child's memory, you know as well, you know in like imagination, you know, and like you it, yeah, it, it, yeah. it sticks with you right through your life, and even like up, I guess now even using them ideas and generation oh, yeah. of seeds
3: i I think everybody does, I think all writers do. you're you're always drawing on your past for this or that or seed of something and some wise man I don't remember who it was said that the the world was the universe was not only stranger than we imagine but stranger than we can imagine and I think that's a very wise idea
1: You know, jumping then right into the, kind of up to the present day, and, you know, just on our little conversation on the emails, and, you know, I was saying I'll get in touch with you, you know, I can either do it via mm-hmm. Skype, and you came back and said, what What Skype? Is yes. d- Does it get to a point, Gene, when you think, you know, technology is moving so quick now, you know what I mean, forget sure. it, let it go, let it go on its own, and, you know, I'm quite happy at this level, or do you still strive to, kind because you're, you know, a science no, fiction I, writer? I, I,
3: I, try, I try and stay current but I can't you know it's it's like when I was a kid reading science fiction reading the pulp magazines uh, you could read all the science fiction as it came out you know you could buy uh, maybe six magazines and read them through and you were reading all the current science fiction as it came out and now that's no longer possible and technology is like that now, so it seems to me. Uh, I don't think that there is anybody who is really up on everything that's going on all the time. Uh, there is just so much being done. Uh, I know, or I have heard, at least, that uh, they are working on a uh oh, what is it, uh, AI airplane, artificially intelligent airplane. Uh, the U.S., of course, a- is doing a lot with drones, which are controlled remotely uh, by an operator on the ground and fly over and shoot people or whatever. And they are working on making these drones uh, artificially intelligent. So that if the operator is separated by jamming of the signals or something like that, the drone will just go off and fight on its own. Uh, and there's all this stuff. And how in the world do you do that? You know, from from a, a programming standpoint, how do you do it? Um, it's just mind-blowing things are happening. We. We live in a science fiction world. Damon Knight used to say about the science fiction writers of the 30s, we have had their future. And that's very largely true, not entirely, but very largely true. And uh, now we're we're rushing ahead. And uh, I think in many cases, I think science fiction is probably behind what's really available now or is being worked on now.
1: Just, I mean, I've, like I say, I've kept you so long now as well. But just out of curiosity, what are you reading, fiction-wise, Gene? At I the minute, mean, what's the book by your bedside? That's that's on your bedside table.
3: Oh, lordy, um, I'm trying to read when I get time for it. Uh, I have been trying to read uh, "A Farewell to Arms" by Ernest Hemingway, which is a classic book that I have never read. Uh, I'm trying to read a Kipling collection that I haven't even started yet. I've got that right here. What the heck is the title of this? Uh, Actions and Reactions. And uh, I've been reading uh, Hank Reinhart's The Book of Swords. And recently I remembered that I got about halfway through the second volume of couplings from C to C and uh I never went back and finished it. Uh but I, I realize that none of those books are science fiction, but I do read a good deal of science fiction. I just don't Happen to be reading any of it right now?
1: Oh, that's I let you off. That's all right. <laughs> uh-huh. Is do you, and uh, do you start, I just I'm interested to just know. You know, if you you pick a book up, are, are you one of the readers? that kind of determined to get it finished? Are you quite happy? If you're not happy with the way this book's going, you'll 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 leave it. You know, and walk away from it.
3: Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. If
1: I get
3: far into the book. And it gets worse and worse. And I have read some books like that. I, I still, these I think are the, are the most irritating books to read. Uh, the book that has a marvelous first chapter. And then the second chapter is really quite good. And the third chapter is good too. And the fourth chapter is pretty good. And the fifth chapter is okay. And the sixth chapter is really getting kind of stupid and dull. And the seventh chapter, you stop halfway through and you realize that the whole thing is just going downhill and it is never going to turn back up again. And uh, these are the real waste of time books because they draw you in because there is good stuff up front. And... You spend a lot of time plodding through second and third and fourth rate stuff until uh, you give the thing up.
1: Uh, I've, I've hit more than a few of those. <laughs> Gene, it's been an honor to, to honestly to get to talk with you. you. know, thank you so much for just taking the time. Well,
3: and now tell me this how did you get connected with Starship so far?
1: Well, Starship Sofa was, and it's, it's again, it's like, you know, we're talking about like technology and everything like that. It was, I'd I'd started it with a friend and it was Kieran, he's called Kieran O'Carroll. And actually we've, you know, we've kind of parted in Starship Sofa now, but... I'd heard about this thing called podcasting, you know, and I kind of, phoned, mm-hmm, sure. I, ph- I phoned mm-hmm. Kieran up and I says, "Kieran, do you want to have a, d- a go at doing this?" You know, and it was literally, "What is it?" And I'm not too sure, you know, what I mean? but I know we're going to talk about science fiction, and it was it was such a little steep learning curve, even just to find out how to do it. You know, that like you could take audio and record it on your computer, and you could put it up on the internet. You know, it was mm-hmm. about three or four months of. Like intense, getting it wrong many times, you know what I mean? Recording and re recording. And then, you know, like, see, it, all this has just come about with, you know, the introduction of the broadband. You know, my show couldn't have taken off without broadband uh-huh. speed, internet speeds, you know, that's how sure. Sure. that's how everything. You couldn't download it first, no? Yes, mm-hmm. it would just, it would just, mm-hmm. it wouldn't, it wouldn't come down the tubes, <laughs> so mm-hmm. to speak. And it was just, you know, our, both our loves. For, for science fiction, you know what I mean, and it's mm-hmm. funny because you know Kieran was like a, a reader from like oh, probably about you know four or five year old. Where with me, I was totally different. I was probably twenty, twenty two. I'm forty three now. Before I even read my first book, you know what I mean. I was a bit of a tinker at school, and mm. I was I was a bit of a bad lad, you know. Before, I, oh. you know what I mean, and I, I never did any kind of reading or anything like that. And oh, my. oh <laughs> what, was your, what 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 helped you? What what got you going? Well, it's the, what got us was actually I had to stay at an old girlfriend's house. I had to like babysit the house, and
4: uh-huh. it was
1: and it was a weekend, and there was. It was one of the C.S. Lewis, you know, the, the Narnia Chronicles. It was one of those books there. And like uh-huh. said, I'm a, I was a 22-year-old lad that had, you know, kind of never picked up a book like to read. And it was just there, and I was there for two days. And I think, you know, I picked it up, and I think it took a couple of hours to get through. And I was like... Wow. <laughs> there was all this yeah. like this total other experience I'd never even tackled before. You know, like reading and like this you know, it's like you know, the kind of cliche's movies in your head. And it was just uh-huh. from there, do you know what I mean? And it, it that's when, you know I I think I was having my second childhood, you know, when you kinda you consume books in silly amounts, you know what I mean? It was just from then and I was yeah. like reading and reading and reading and reading and reading and it was just you know it it was quite, I think that was one of the key things with when we started Starship Silver. Kieran had a totally different upbringing in books. You know, he had the history in the back and and I had the kind of, you know, it was totally different. I was like, you know, 22 years old before I even read well, the story, yeah. you know, so. Yeah. But we've been yeah. going now, I mean, you see, we've been going now probably six, five years, I think it is, something like that. Mm-hmm. So nearly five years, so still going, st- you know, and it's like I say, it's an amazing thing now where, you know, you've got this internet you've got this kind of, you can get a community out there, you know, joining all the kind of fractions up that like science fiction and come together under, you know, you know, starship, mm-hmm. so far or escape pod, another podcast. And just, you know, I think it's like, it's rejuvenated a lot of people who, you know, used to probably read science fiction when they were, you know, younger generation yeah, yeah. and now they're, yeah. they're coming back to it because, you know, you can, you can get it so easy now, you know. Yes, yes. This new technology. Yeah, people, people
3: leave and then come back, and
1: yeah, there's no question of it. Yes,
3: you know? I mean, yeah, I've known uh, Don Brazier did it, uh, left science fiction for I don't know how long, and of course uh, Ray Lafferty was writing in his twenties, and a writing teacher told him that he shouldn't write until he was forty and he actually took the advice he stopped writing and then started again when he was 40
1: it's, it's it is isn't it it's i mean i've had many an email you know saying, you know cuz you, you listen to my show either on your computer or on your ipod or you know nowadays on your on your mobile phone and i've had lots of emails saying you know i, I didn't think i would get back into it i used to read it when i was a child but listening to all the kind of the, the, the classic science fiction and even, you know, playing news stories on the show now, you know, it just mm-hmm. you get lots of emails just, you know, mm-hmm. doing that. So, it's yes, it's quite quite rewarding.
3: Yes, yes, I can imagine.
1: So are, yes. are, are you catching some writing time today, then, when I leave you? Have you got to? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to have to see how my day goes from here on, you know. That's what I was, going to, I, I was going to ask you. That is, what, you know, like now you're seeing your your time for writing. Can you just, what, when you know you've got an hour, can you just sit into that writing mode and and go? Or does it? Is, oh yeah, yeah, is, yeah.
3: And I don't have to know I have an hour. You know, if if I I see that I can do it, I'm I'm going to be able to do it for a while now. You know, however long, even if it's only
1: ten minutes, then I can sit down and, uh, and do it. Yeah. Well, Gene, honestly, it's, like I say again, it's been an honor. I kind of keep praising you. You know, it's just, uh, you know, it's like speaking to your heroes Yeah, So thank you so much for taking the time out uh, to have a chat with us. Well, thank you so much. You're very kind. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Oh, that's, that's, that's really nice. Well, You're thank right you nice. very much. And I'll be in touch. You know what I mean? I'll, I'll, t- I'll drop you an email when, when the interview goes up so you can, you can okay. co- come and have a listen. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you. Take good care. I uh, I sure try. Thank you very much, bye-bye. Gene. bye-bye. There you go. I hope you enjoyed that. Do look out for some more. And like I say, if you want to hear like the extra bit, you know, please pop over. Think about it. You know what I mean? Think about the coming over to the sanatorium shows. I'm gonna try and put lots of things in there, you know. Just different things as well, things that you know, maybe I'll just wanna chance, phoning someone up, phoning someone up, you know, speaking to somebody else, maybe nothing to do with kind of science fiction, maybe an editor, you know, and I might just kind of put that in there. It's just really to kind of say thank you and try and entice some more people over. So I hope you enjoyed, you know, kind of the, the whole kind of interrogations. Like I say, I've got a few more, a lot of, you know, loads more kind of lined up and loads more planned. Look out for that next month. So next up is... Main fiction, and it comes from Will McIntosh. Now, this story, Bridal, appeared in Asimov's, oh, a while ago, and I read it there, and, you know, I loved it, and I kind of just straight away, I emailed Will, and, and Will's been on Escape Pod, he's been on a couple of, like, podcasts, you know, and he's had a few stories around and it's funny, I kind of get to his website at the moment because he I think he's, he's lost his, you know, he didn't keep up with his name. And so you go to his website now and it was the last time I checked and it was all, you know, a Japanese or a Chinese company took over it. and It was all just kind of Chinese writing on it, you know. And I landed on it trying to, you know, contact Will. I was thinking, oh, this is not the right site I should be at. But when I actually, I first read the story in Azimov's it was you know, I thought, wow, that's a great story. And I contacted Will and for some reason the email got lost. Will didn't get it, you know, and like I say, I just passed it off and thought, well, you know, I've lost that one. And then see this story is now up for the the Nebula Wars, two thousand nine Nebula Wars best short story. And I thought, well, I'm going to try again. Do you know what I mean? God loves a tryer. So I emailed Will again and I got through. Do you know what I mean? Will was so kind of, yes, Tony, please, by all means, do that. And like I say, I just got this about a week and a half ago. I sent it straight over to Amy H. Sturgis, our AM. She just rattled it off and done a great, like I say, put the words, how I kind of imagined them, you know, when I was reading the story. AIM just hit that, do you know what I mean? That old nail on the head. Fantastic. So, and like I say, this is a great story and it certainly deserves... To be like a nebula nomination, do you know what I mean? So the Starship Sofa and her Oral Delights is very proud to present.
4: Bride Sickle by Will McIntosh. The words were gentle strokes, drawing her awake. Hello. Hello there. She felt the light on her eyelids and knew that if she opened her eyes, they would sting and she would have to shade them with her palm. "'and let the light bleed through a crack. "'Feel like talking?' "'A man's soft voice. "'And then her mind cleared enough to wonder, "'where was Mom? "'She called into the corners of her mind, "'but there was no answer, and that could not be. "'Once she'd let Mom in, there was no tossing her out.' It was not like letting Mom move into her apartment. There was no going back once Mom was in her mind, because there was no body for Mom to return to. So, where was she? Oh, I know you're awake by now. Come on, Sleeping Beauty, talk to me. The last was a whisper, a lover's words, and Mira felt that she had to come awake and open her eyes. She tried to sigh, but... "'No breath came.' "'Her eyes flew open in alarm. "'An old man was leaning over her, smiling, "'but Mira barely saw him, "'because when she opened her mouth to inhale, "'her jaw squealed like a seabird's cry, "'and no breath came, "'and she wanted to press her hands to the sides of her face, "'but her hands wouldn't come either. "'Nothing would move except her face. "'Hello. Hello. And how are you?' "'The old man was smiling gently,' as if Mira might break if he set his whole smile loose. He was not that old, she saw now, maybe sixty. The furrows in his forehead and the ones framing his nose only seemed deep because his face was so close to hers, almost close enough for a kiss. Are you having trouble? He reached out and stroked her hair. You have to press down with your back teeth to control the airflow. Didn't they show you? There was an airflow, a gentle breeze whooshing up her throat and out her mouth and nose. It tickled the tiny hairs in her nostrils. She bit down, and the breeze became a hiss, an exhale strong enough that her chest should drop, but it didn't. Or maybe it did, and she just couldn't tell, because she couldn't lift her head to look. Where? "'Mira said, and then she howled in terror "'because her voice sounded horrible, "'deep and hoarse and hollow, "'the voice of something that had pulled itself from a swamp. "'It takes some getting used to. "'Am I your first? "'No one has revived you before, "'not even for an orientation?' "'The notion seemed to please him, "'that he was her first, whatever that meant. "'Mira studied him, wondering if she should recognize him.' He preened at her attention, as if expecting Mira to be glad to see him. He was not an attractive man. His nose was thick and bumpy and not in an aristocratic way. His nostrils were like a bull's, his brow Neanderthal, but his mouth dainty. She didn't recognize him. I can't move. Why can't I move? Mira finally managed. She looked around as best she could. It's okay. Try to relax. Only your face is working. What happened? Mira finally managed. You were in a car accident, he said. His brow now flexed with concern. He consulted a readout on his palm. Fairly major damage. Ruptured aorta. Right leg gone. Right leg gone? Her right leg? She couldn't see anything except the man hanging over her and a gold-colored ceiling, high, high above. "'This is a hospital?' she asked. "'No, no, a dating center.' "'What?' For the first time she noticed that there were other voices in the room, speaking in low, earnest, confidential tones. She caught snippets close by. "'Neutral colors!' How could anyone choose Violet? Last time I was at a Dayglow's concert, I was seventeen. I shouldn't be the one doing this. The man turned, looking over his shoulder. There's usually an orientation. He raised his voice. Hello? He turned back around to face her, shrugged, looking bemused. I guess we're on our own. He clasped his hands, leaned in toward Mira. The truth is, you see... "'You died in the accident.' "'Mira didn't hear the next few things he said. "'She felt as if she were floating. "'It was an absurd idea that she might be dead, "'yet hear someone tell her she was dead, "'but somehow it rang true. "'She didn't remember dying, "'but she sensed some hard, fast line, "'some demarcation between now and before. "'The idea made her want to flee, "'escape her body, which was a dead body.' Her teeth were corpse's teeth. Your insurance covered the deep freeze preservation, but full revival, especially when it involves extensive injury, is terribly costly. That's where the dating service comes in. Where is my mother? Mira interrupted. The man consulted his palm again. He nodded. You had a hitcher, your mother. He glanced around again, raised his hand as if to wave at someone, then dropped it. A hitcher. What an apropos term. Is she gone? Mira wanted to say, is she dead, but that had become an ambiguous concept. Yes, you need consistent brain activity to maintain a hitcher. Once you die, the hitcher is gone. Like a phone number you're trying to remember, Mira thought. You have to hold it with thought, and if you lose it, you never get it back. Mira felt hugely relieved. From the moment she waked, she kept expecting to hear her mother's voice. Now she knew it wouldn't come, and she could relax. She felt guilty for feeling relieved that her mother was dead, but who would blame her? Certainly not anyone who'd known her mother. Certainly not Lynn. I have a sister, she said. Lynn, "'Her jaw moved so stiffly. "'Yes, a twin sister. "'Now, that would be interesting.' "'The man grinned, his eyebrows raised. "'Is she still alive?' "'No,' he said in a tone that suggested she was a silly girl. "'You've been gone for over eighty years, Sleeping Beauty.' "'He made a sweeping gesture, as if all of that was trivial. "'But let's focus on the present.' The way this works is, we get acquainted. We have dates. If we find we're compatible... He raised his shoulders toward his ears, smiled his dainty smile. Then I might be enticed to pay for you to be revived, so that we can be together. Dates. So, my name is Red, and I know from your readout that your name is Mira. Nice to meet you, Mira. Nice to meet you, Mira murmured. He'd said she died in a car accident. She tried to remember, but nothing came. Nothing about the accident, anyway. The memories that raced up at her were arguments. Arguments with her mother. An argument at a shopping mall. Mom hated everything Mira liked, trying to get Mira to go to the seniors' section and buy cheap, drab house dresses. Mom had had no control of Mira's body. She was only a hitcher, after all. But... There are lots of ways to control. So, Mira, Red clapped his hands together. Do you want to bullshit, or do you want to get intimate? The raised eyebrows again, the same as when he made the twins' comment. I don't understand, Mira said. Well, for example, here's a question. He leaned in close, his breath puffing in her ear. If I revived you, what sorts of things would you do to me? Mira was sure that this man's name was not Red, and she doubted he was here to revive anyone. I don't know. That's an awfully intimate question. Why don't we get to know each other first? She needed time to think, even just a few minutes of quiet to make sense of this. Red frowned theatrically. Come on. Tease me a little. Should she tell Red she was gay? Surely not. He would lose interest and maybe report it to whoever owned the facility. But why hadn't whoever owned the facility known she was gay? Maybe that was to be part of the orientation she'd missed. Whatever the reason, did she want to risk being taken out of circulation or unplugged and buried? Would that be the worst thing? The thought jangled something long forgotten or more like deeply forgotten. Everything in her life was long forgotten. She'd fought something along those lines once, and there had been so much pain that the pain still echoed, even without the memory. She reached for the memory, but it was sunk deep in a turgid goo that she encountered whenever she tried to remember something. Had she really been able to effortlessly pull up memories when she was alive, or was that just how she remembered it? I'm just... She wanted to say, not in the mood. But that was not only a cliché, but a vast understatement. She was dead. She couldn't move anything but her face. And that made her feel untethered, as if she were floating, drifting. Hands and feet grounded you. Mira had never realized. I'm just not very good at this sort of thing. Well... Red put his hands on his thighs, made a production of standing. This costs quite a bit, and they charge by the minute. So I'll say goodbye now, and you can go back to being dead. Go back? Wait, Mira said. They could bring her back and then let her die again? She imagined her body sealed up somewhere, maybe for years, maybe forever. The idea terrified her. Red paused, waiting. Okay, I would... She tried to think of something, but there were so many things running through her mind, so many trains of thought she wanted to follow, none of them involving the pervert leaning over her. Were there other ways to get permanently revived? Did she have any living relatives she might contact, or maybe a savings account that had been accruing interest for the past 80 years? Had she had any savings when she died? She'd had a house. She remembered that. Lynn would have inherited it. Fine. If you're not going to talk, I'll just say goodbye, Red snapped. But don't think anyone else is coming. Your injuries would make you a costly revival. And there are tens of thousands of women here. Plus, men don't want the women who'd been frozen 60 years before the facility opened because they have nothing in common with those women. Please, Mira said. He reached for something over her head, out of sight. "'Mira dreamed that she was running on a trail in the woods. "'The trail sloped upward, growing steeper and steeper "'until she was running up big steps. "'Then the steps entered a flimsy plywood tower and wound up, up. "'It was dark, and she could barely see, "'but it felt so good to run. "'It had been such a long time that she didn't care how steep it was. "'She climbed higher, considered turning back, but she wanted to make it to the top after having gone so far. Finally, she reached the top, and there was a window where she could see a vast river and a lovely college campus set along it. She hurried over to the window for a better view, and as she did, the tower leaned under her shifting weight and began to fall forward. The tower built speed, hurtling toward the buildings. This is it, she thought, her stomach flip-flopping. This is the moment of my death. Mira jolted awake before she hit the ground. An old man, likely in his seventies, squinted down at her. You're not my type, he grumbled, reaching over her head. Hi. It came out flimmy. The man cleared his throat. I've never done this before. He was a fat man, maybe forty? What's the date? Mira asked still groggy. "'January 3rd, 2352,' the man said. Nearly 30 years had passed. The man wiped his mouth with the back of his wrist. "'I feel a little sick for being here, like I'm a child molester or something,' he frowned. "'But there are so many stories out there of people finding true love in the drawers. My cousin Ansel met his second wife, Florin, at a revival center. Lovely woman.' The man gave her a big, sloppy smile. I'm Lycan, by the way. I'm Mira. Nice to meet you. Your smile is a little wavery, in a cute way. I can tell you're honest. You wouldn't use me to get revived and then divorce me. You have to watch out for that. Lycan sat in an angle, perhaps trying to appear thinner. I can see how that would be a concern, Mira said. Lycan heaved a big sigh. Maybe meeting women at a bridesickle place is pathetic, but it's not as pathetic as showing up at every company party alone, with your hands in your pockets instead of holding someone else's, or else coming with a woman who not only has a loud laugh and a lousy sense of humor, but is ten years older than you and not very attractive. That's pathetic. Let people suspect my beautiful young wife was revived. They'll still be jealous, and I'll still be walking tall holding her hand as everybody checked her out. Lycan fell silent for a moment. My grandmother says I'm talking too much. Sorry. So, Lycan had a hitcher. At least one. It was so difficult to tell. You got so good at carrying on two conversations at once when you had a hitcher. No, I like it, Mira said. It allowed her precious time to think. When she was alive, there had been times in Mira's life when she had little free time, but she had always had time to think. She could think while commuting to work, while standing in lines, and during all of the other in-between times. Suddenly, it was the most precious thing. Lycan wiped his palms. First dates are not my best moments. You're doing great. Mira smiled as best she could. "'although she knew the smile did not reach her eyes. "'She had to get out of here, "'had to convince one of these guys to revive her. "'One of these guys? "'This was only the third person to revive her "'in the fifty years that the place had been open. "'And if the first guy, the pervert, was to be believed, "'she'd become less desirable the longer she was here. "'Mira wished she could see where she was. "'Was she in a coffin? On a bed? "'She wished she could move her neck.' What's it like in here? she asked. Are we in a room? You want to see? Here. Lycan held his palm a foot or so over her face. A screen embedded there, flashing words and images in three dimensions, transformed into a mirror. Mira recoiled. Her own dead face looked down at her, her skin gray, her lips bordering on blue. Her face was flaccid. She looked slightly unbalanced or mentally retarded rather than peaceful. A glittering silver mesh concealed her to the neck. Lycan angled the mirror, giving her a view of the room. It was a vast open space, like the atrium of an enormous hotel. A lift was descending through the center of the atrium. People hurried across beautifully designed bridges as crystal blue water traced twisting paths through huge transparent tubes suspended in the open space, giving the impression of flying streams. Nearby, Mira saw a man sitting beside an open drawer, his mouth moving, head nodding, hands set a little self-consciously in his lap. Lycan took the mirror away. His eyes had grown big and round. What is it? Mira asked. He opened his mouth to speak, then changed his mind, shook his head. Nothing. Please, tell me... There was a long pause. Mira guessed it was an internal dispute. Finally, Lycan answered. It's just that it's finally hitting me at a gut level. I'm talking to a dead person. If I could hold your hand, your fingers would be cold and stiff. Mira looked away, toward the ceiling. She felt ashamed, ashamed of the dead body that housed her. What's it like, he whispered, as if he were asking something obscene. Mira didn't want to answer, but she also didn't want to go back to being dead. It's hard. It's hard to have no control over anything, not when I can be awake or who I talk to. And to be honest, it's scary. When you end this date, I'm going to be gone. No thoughts, no dreaming, just... Nothingness—it terrifies me. I dread those few minutes before the date ends. Lycan looked sorry. He'd asked, so Mira changed the subject, asking about Lycan's hitchers. He had two: his father and his grandmother. I don't get it," Mira said. "Why are there still hitchers if they figured out how to revive people?" In her day, medical science had progressed enough that there was hope of a breakthrough, and preservation was common. But the dead stayed dead. Bodies wear out, Lycan said, matter-of-factly. If you revive a lady who's 99, she'll just keep dying. So, tell me about yourself. I see you had a hitcher? Mira told Lycan about her mother, and Lycan uttered the requisite condolences, and she pretended they were appropriate. She held no illusions about why she had agreed to host her mother. It was, in a sense, a purely selfish motive. She knew she couldn't live with the guilt if she said no. It was emotional blackmail, but her mother did. But it was flawlessly executed. But I'm dying, Mira. I'm scared. Please. Even across eighty years and death, Mira could still hear her mother's voice, its perpetually aggrieved tone. An awful darkness filled her when she thought of her mother. She felt guilty and ashamed. But what did she have to feel ashamed of? What do you owe your mother if the only kindness she had ever offered was giving birth to you? Do you owe her a room in your mind? What if you loved a woman instead of a nice man, and your mother barely spoke to you? How about if your soulmate died, painfully, and your mother's attempt to console you was to say, maybe next time you should try a man? As if Jeanette's death justified her mother's disapproval. What if I actually find someone here, and she agrees to marry me in exchange for being revived? Lycan was saying. Would people sense she was too good-looking to be with me and guess that I'd met her at a bridesickle place? We'd have to come up with a convincing story about how and where we met, something that doesn't sound made up. Bridesickle? Lycan shrugged. That's what some people call this sort of place. Then, even if someone revived her, she would be a pariah. People would want nothing to do with her. Her mother's voice rang in her mind, almost harmonizing the line. I want nothing to do with you, you and your girlfriend. I'm afraid it's time for me to say goodbye. I should circulate. But maybe we can talk again? Lycan said. She didn't want to die again, didn't want to be thrown into that abyss. She had so much to think about, to remember. I'd like that, was all she said resisting the urge to scream, to beg this man not to kill her. If Mira did that, he'd never come back. As he reached over to turn her off, Mira used her last few seconds to try to reach for the memory of her accident. It sat like a splinter under her skin. Lycan came back. He told her it had been a week since his first visit, Mira had no sense of how much time had passed, the way you do when you've been asleep. A week felt the same as thirty years. I've talked to eleven women, and none of them were half as interesting as you, especially the women who died recently. Modern women can be so shallow, so unwilling to seek a common ground. I don't want a relationship that's a struggle. I want to care about my wife's needs, to be able to say... No, honey, let's go see the movie you want to see, and count on her saying, No, that's okay, I know how much you want to see that other one. And sometimes we could see her movie, and sometimes mine. I know just what you mean, Mira said, in what she hoped was an intimate tone, as intimate as her graveyard voice could manage. That's why I came to the bottom floor, to the women who died a hundred, a hundred twenty-five years ago. I thought... Why not a woman from a more innocent time? She would probably be more appreciative. The woman at the orientation told me that choosing a bridesickle instead of a live woman was a generous thing to do. You were giving a life to someone who'd been cheated out of theirs. I don't kid myself, though. I'm not doing this out of some nobility, but it's nice to think I'm doing something good for someone. And the girls at the bottom need it more than the girls at the top. You've been in line longer. Mira had been in line a long time. It didn't seem that way, though. It had only been, what, about an hour of life since she died? It was difficult to gauge because she didn't remember dying. Mira tried to think back. Had her car accident been in the city or on a highway? Had she been at fault? Nothing came except memories of what must have been the weeks leading up to it, of her mother driving her crazy. "'Once she took in her mother, she could never love again. "'How could she make love to someone with her mother watching? "'Even a man would have been out of the question, "'although a man was out of the question in any case. "'It's awkward, though,' Lykin was saying. "'There aren't any nice ways to tell someone that you aren't interested. "'I'm not in practice rejecting women. "'I'm much more familiar with the other end of the equation. "'If you weren't in that drawer,' you probably wouldn't give me a second glance. Mira could see that he was fishing, that he wanted her to tell him he was wrong, that she would give him a second glance. It was difficult. It wasn't in her nature to pretend that she felt something she didn't. But she didn't have the luxury of honoring her nature. Of course I would. You're a wonderful man and good-looking. Lycan beamed. What is it about us, Mira wondered, that we will believe any lie, no matter how outrageous, if it's flattering? Some people just spark something in you, make you breathe fast, you know, Lycan said. Others don't. It's hard to say why, but in those first seconds of seeing someone, he snapped his fingers, you can always tell. He held her gaze for a moment, something that was clearly uncomfortable for him, then looked at his lap. Blushing, "'I know what you mean,' Mira said. She tried to smile warmly, knowingly. It made her feel like shit. There was constant murmur of background chatter this time. "'Through life and revival, to have and to hold.' "'What is that I'm hearing? Is that a marriage ceremony?' Mira asked. Lycan glanced over his shoulder, nodded. "'They happen all the time here.' It's kind of risky to revive someone otherwise. Of course, Mira said. She'd been here for decades, yet she knew nothing about this place. There's something I have to tell you, Lycan said. It was their sixth or seventh date. Mira had grown fond of Lycan, which was a good thing, because the only thing she ever saw was Lycan's doughy jowls, the little bump of chin poking out of them. He was her life, such as it was. "'What is it?' Mira asked. He looked off into the room, sighed heavily. "'I've never enjoyed a woman's company as much as yours. I have to be honest with you, but I'm afraid if I am, I'll lose you.' Mira tried to imagine what this man could possibly say— that would lead her to choose being dead over his company. I'm sure that won't happen, whatever it is. You can trust me. Lycan put his hand over his eyes, his chest hitched. Mira made gentle, shushing sounds, the sort of sounds her mother had never made, not even when Jeanette died. It's okay, she cooed, whatever it is. It's okay. Lycan finally looked at her, his eyes red. I really like you, Mira. I think I even love you, but I'm not a rich man. I can't afford to revive you, and I never will, not even if I sold everything I owned. She hadn't even realized how much hope she was harboring until it was dashed. Well, that's not your fault, I guess. She tried to sound chipper, though inside she felt black despair. Lycan nodded. I'm sorry I lied to you. Mira didn't have to ask why he came here pretending to be looking for a wife if he couldn't afford to revive anyone. The women here must all be kind to him, must hang on his every word in the hope that he'd choose them and free them from their long sleep. Where else would a man like Lycan get that sort of attention? "'Can you forgive me?' Lycan asked, looking like a scolded bulldog. "'Can I still visit you?' "'Of course. I'd miss you terribly if you didn't.' The truth was, if Lycan didn't visit, Mira would be incapable of missing anyone. No one else was visiting or likely to stumble upon her— among the army of bridesickles lying shoulder to shoulder in boxes in this endless mausoleum. That was the end of it. Lycan changed the subject, struck up a conversation about his collection of vintage gaming code, and Mira listened and made m mm-hmm sounds in the pauses, and thought her private thoughts. She found herself thinking about her mom more than Jeanette. Perhaps it was because she'd already learned to accept that Jeanette was gone— and Mom's death was still fresh, despite being not nearly as heartbreaking. After Jeanette died, Mira had worked over her death until there were no new thoughts she could possibly think. And when she had finally been able to let Jeanette rest? She had the most astonishing thought. She couldn't believe it hadn't occurred to her until now. Jeanette had worked for Capital Life Key, just like Mira. Preservation had been part of Jeanette's benefits package, just like Mira. Lycan, would you do something for me? It felt as if an eternity rode on the question she was about to ask. Sure. Anything. Would you run a search on a friend of mine who died? What's her name? Jeanette Zirk. Born 2224. Mira was not as anxious as she thought she should be, as Lycan checked, probably because her heart could not race and her palms could not sweat. It was surprising how much emotion was housed in the body instead of the mind. Lycan checked. Yes, she's here. She's here? In this place? Yes. He consulted the readout, pulling his palm close to his nose Then he pointed across the massive atrium, lower down than they were. Over there. I don't know why you're surprised. If she was stored, she'd be here. It's a felony to renege on a storage contract. Mira wished she could lift her head and look where he was pointing. She had spent the last few years of her life accepting that Jeanette was really gone and would never come back. Can you wake her? And give her a message from me, please? Lycan was rendered momentarily speechless. Please, Mira said. It would mean so much to me. Okay, I guess, sure, hold on. Lycan stood tenuously, looked confused for a moment, and then headed off. He returned a moment later. What message should I give her? Mira wanted to ask Lycan to tell Jeanette she loved her, but that might be a bad idea. Just tell her I'm here? Thank you so much. Maybe it was someone else, or Mira's imagination, but she felt sure she heard a distant caw of surprise. Jeanette, reacting to the news. Soon Lycan's smiling face poked into view above her. She was very excited by the news. I mean, out of her head excited. I thought she'd leap out of her crash and hug me. What did she say? Mira tried to sound calm. Jeanette was here. Suddenly, everything had changed. Mira had a reason to live. She had to figure out how to get out there. She said to tell you she loved you. Mira sobbed. He had really talked to Jeanette. What a strange and wonderful and utterly incomprehensible thing. She also said she hoped you didn't suffer much in the accident. It wasn't an accident, Mira said. It just came out. She said it without having thought at first which was a strange experience, as if someone had taken control of her dead mouth and formed the words, rode them out of her on the hiss of air coursing through her throat. There was a long, awkward silence. What do you mean? Lycan said, frowning. Mira remembered now, not the moment itself, but planning it, intending it. She had put on her best tan suit. Mother kept asking what the occasion was. She wanted to know why Mira was making such a fuss when they were only going to Pan Pietro for dinner. She said that Mira wasn't as beautiful as she thought she was and should get off her high horse. Mira had barely heard her. For once, she had not been bothered by her mother's words. I mean, it wasn't an accident, she repeated. "'You were honest with me. "'I want to be honest with you.' "'She did not want to be honest with him, actually. "'But it had come out, and now that it was out, "'she didn't have the strength to draw it back in. "'Oh, well, thank you.' "'Lycan scratched his scalp with one finger, pondering. "'Mira wasn't sure if he got what she was saying. "'After all their conversation,' "'She still had little sense of whether Lycan was intelligent or not. "'You know, if I figure out a way to revive you, "'you could come with me to my company's annual picnic. "'Last year I announced to my whole table "'that I was going to win the door prize, and then I did.' "'Lycan went on about his company picnic "'while Mira thought about Jeanette, "'who had just told Mira she loved her, "'even though they were both dead.' Far too soon, Lycan said goodbye. He told Mira that he would see her on Tuesday and killed her. The man hovering over her was wearing a suit and tie, only the suit was sleeveless and the tie rounded, and the man's skin was bright orange. What year is it, please? Mira said. Twenty-four seventy-seven, he said, not unkindly. Mira couldn't remember the date Lycan had last come. Twenty-four? It had been twenty-three-something, hadn't it? It was a hundred years later. Lycan had never come back. He was gone, dead, or hitching with some relative. The orange man's name was neus Mira didn't think it would be polite to ask why he was orange, so instead she asked what he did for a living. He was an attorney. It suggested to Mira that the world had not changed all that much since she'd been alive, that there were still attorneys, even if they had orange skin. My grandfather Lichen says to tell you hello, Nia said. Mira grinned. It was hard to hold the grin with her stiff lips, but it felt good. Lycan had come back, after all. Tell him he's late, but that's okay. He insisted we talk to you. Nias chatted amiably about Lycan. Lycan had met a woman at a Weight Watchers meeting, and his wife didn't think it was appropriate that he visit Mira anymore. They had divorced twenty years later. He died of a heart attack at sixty-six, was revived, then hitched with his son when he reached his nineties, Lycan's son had hitched with Nias a few years ago, taking Lycan with him. I'm glad Lycan's all right, Mira said when Nias was finished. I'd grown very fond of him. And he of you. Nias crossed his legs, cleared his throat. So tell me, Mira, did you want to have children when you were alive? His tone had shifted to that of a supervisor interviewing a potential employee. The question caught Mira off guard. She'd assumed this was a social call, especially after Neas said that Lycan had insisted they visit her. Yes, actually. I had hoped to. Things don't always work out the way you plan. Mira pictured Jeanette, a stone's throw away, dead in a box. Neas's question raised a flicker of hope. Is this a date, then? she asked. No, he nodded, perhaps to some suggestion from one of his hitchers. Actually, we're looking for someone to bear a child and help raise her. You see, my wife was dying of Dietz syndrome, which is an unrevivable illness, so she hitched with me. We want to have a child. We need a host and a caregiver for the child. I see. Mira's head was spinning, should she blurt out that she'd love the opportunity to raise their child, or would that signal that she was taking the issue too lightly, she settled on a thoughtful expression that hopefully conveyed her understanding of the seriousness of the situation. We would marry, for legal reasons, of course, but the arrangement would be completely platonic. Yes, of course. Neas sighed, looking suddenly annoyed. I'm sorry, Mira. My wife says you're not right. Nias is very upset. He stood, reached over Mira's head. We've interviewed forty or fifty women, but none are good enough, he added testily. No, wait, Mira said. Nias paused. Mira thought fast. What had she done to make the wife suddenly rule her out? The wife must feel terribly threatened at the idea of having a woman in the house, raising her child... "'tempting her husband. "'If Mira could allay the wife's fears, "'I'm gay,' she said. "'Nias looked beyond surprised. "'Evidently, Lycan hadn't realized who Jeanette was, "'even after carrying the verbal love note. "'Friends could say they loved each other. "'Nias said nothing, "'and Mira knew they were having a powwow. "'She prayed she'd read the situation correctly.' So you couldn't fall in love with me, Neas finally asked. It was such a bizarre question. Neas was not only a man, he was an orange man, and not particularly attractive. No, I'm in love with a woman named Jeanette. Lycan met her. There was another long silence. There's also this business about your auto accident not being an accident. Mira had forgotten. How could she so easily forget that she killed herself and her own mother? Maybe because it had been so long ago? Everything from before her death seemed so long ago now. Like another lifetime. It was so long ago, Mira murmured. But yes, it's true. You took your own mother's life? No, that's not what I intended. It wasn't. Mira hadn't wanted her mother dead. She would just wanted to escape her. I fled from her. Just because someone is your mother doesn't mean she can't be impossible to live with. Neas nodded slowly. It's difficult for us to imagine that. Hitching has been a very powerful experience for us. Una and I never dreamed we could be this close, and we're happy to have dad and grandfather and great-grandmother as companions. I know I wouldn't trade it for anything. I can see how it could be beautiful, Mira said. It's like a marriage, I think, but more so. It magnifies the relationship. Good ones get closer and deeper. Bad ones become intolerable. Neas's eyes teared up. Lycan said we can trust you. We need someone we can trust. He kept on nodding for a moment, lost in thought. Then he waved his hand. A long line of written text materialized in the air. Do you believe in spanking children, he asked, reading the first line. Absolutely not, Mira answered, knowing her very existence depended on her answers. Mira's heart was racing so fast it felt as if there were wings flapping in her chest. Lucia was sleeping, her soft little head pressed to Mira's racing heart, The lift swept them up. The vast atrium opened below, as people on the ground shrank to dots. She wanted to run, but kept her pace even, her transparent shoes thwocking on the marble floor. She cried when Jeanette opened her eyes, swept her fingers behind Jeanette's bluish-white ear, lightly brushed her blue lips. Jeanette sobbed. To her, it would have been only a moment since Lycan had spoken to her. You made it. Jeanette croaked in that awful, dead voice. She noticed the baby. Smiled. Good for you. So like Jeanette. To ask for nothing. Not even life. If Jeanette had come to Mira's creche, alive and whole... The first words out of Mira's stiff mouth would have been, Get me out of here. Vows from a wedding ceremony drifted from a few levels above, the husband's voice strong and sure, the wife's toneless and froggy. I can't afford to revive you, love, Mira said, but I've saved enough to absorb you. Is that good enough? Will you stay with me? for the rest of our lives. You can't cry when you're dead, but Jeanette tried, and only the tears were missing. Yes, she said. That's a thousand times better than good enough. Mira nodded, grinning. It will take a few days to arrange. She touched Jeanette's cold cheek. I'll be back in an eye blink. This is the last time you have to die. Promise? I promise. Mira reached up, and Jeanette died for the last time.
1: They go. Will, thank you so much. Don't forget, copyright is Will Macintosh, And Am. thank you so much for jumping straight in there and doing a fine narration. Excellent narration. Thank you so much. Next we come on to the Observation Deck with Cheryl Morgan. Now, like I say, Cheryl is... All over the world this year, going to science fiction conventions. You know, it's just a, it's a, it's a great chance to just to get someone who's there at you know and going all she's going all over the place. You know, Finland, France, Australia, New Zealand. You know, a couple in UK. And like I say, it's too good a chance not to miss. You know, and it's like I say, it's a phone call, and hopefully some of them. You know, we can get them all kind of done. It all depends on kind of Wi-Fi connections and everything like that. Do you know what I mean? Because if it's not, then you know I was saying that. To Cheryl, it's all to do about. I'll have to phone Cheryl, you know that, and I could phone from Skype. Yeah, but then if it's Cheryl's using her own mobile phone, it's going to cost a fortune. So hopefully, we're going to sort these things out. And like, say, Wi Fi is up and running. That's perfect. We can just do it, and it's great. But actually, this one here was Wi Fi was fantastic. Lovely, clear reception in Ireland. Thank you, Ireland, for this. This is me. This is me calling Cheryl, and you know, just having a chat about pecon <laughs> So hello Cheryl Hello Tony Hello and I've just heard that you're at Are you at the actual bar there now at this conference?
0: I, I am in the library <laughs> bar at the Central Hotel in Dublin oh. Now Cheryl and, then, t- I was going to say Tell us where you are and what, what this conference is righty. well P- uh, this is PECON Which is short for PhoenixCon It's one of two annual conventions That take place in Dublin every year the other one is Octocon, which uh, takes place as my guest in October. So they, they have them like equally spread, one in March, one in October. And, um, Peacon takes place regularly at the Central Hotel, which is right in the middle of Dublin, very near Trinity College. And, uh, it's a very pleasant location indeed. It's a, a lovely old hotel. Um, lots of green in the decor, as you might expect. And it has one of the best bars I have ever come across. (laughs) Um, It's called the Library Bar. And it's called the Library Bar for a very good reason, in that the walls are lined with bookshelves.
1: Is it all right? um,
0: With actual, real books. I'm just looking at at the shelf behind me here. There's uh, a copy of Barchester Towers by Anthony Trollope. Um, There's a George Eliot book. Um, Barnaby Rudge by Charles Dickens. And um, the something called the Fruit Grower's Guide by Horace Wright in two volumes.
1: Lovely, I, and, I, I lots could, and lots of, of other lovely yeah, antique books here. It it really does look quite gorgeous. It is one um, of them places, you know when you when you do see books in you know anywhere like that, and you just you get that kind of little well, oh quite yeah. a warm the, feeling. Yeah, the
0: bar is is full of lovely comfy chairs and and lots of fans busily enjoying the local brew. Which is sort of black with a, a cream yes.
1: head on it. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what that is. Yes, is there a good turnout for Pecon then this year? Is it or
0: um, there, there are probably about a hundred people here altogether, um, which it, it's not huge, but um, for Ireland, obviously, it's uh, it's reasonably large, and they do attract a remarkably large number of writers. Oops.
1: I was going to say, who's in? Who's there that we might know? Is there any to say, big science fiction writers, or are they all just little, you know, just breaking
0: well, in? Well, it really depends what you mean by big. The, uh, the guest of honour is uh, Nick Harkaway. Doesn't ring um, a bell, that, for me. Okay, well, um, you, you might have heard of his dad. Are um, you you're familiar with a, f- a fellow called John le Carré? All right, well, Nick is his son, right. and Nick, Nick is a science fiction writer. Uh, he's written one novel called The Gone Away World, which is absolutely wonderful, and I thoroughly recommend it to everybody. And he's also a lovely bloke. And he's married to this amazing lady called Claire, who runs a human rights charity called Reprieve. And uh, she, she's ever so nice, and she she's like, spends all her life trying to save people who are uh, on death row or have been... Arrested by dictatorial governments and all that sort of stuff. Right. Oh. Um, but uh, getting back to the science fiction writers, um, there's uh, a large number of them here, or at least who have turned up at some point or another. Um, uh, Juliet McKenna is a regular here. I believe she's been to every single PCOM thus far. Um, let's see. Uh, Mike Shefton is here. Wasm um, McGann uh, Colin Harvey uh, Katie Murphy um, other years they've had uh, Charlie Strauss who's actually fairly regularly uh, attending here but he's, he's been a, a guest of honour at something else either last weekend or next weekend so um, he wasn't able to make it this time
1: and am I right, uh, am I right in thinking you've been on some panels as well
0: Oh, yes. They, oh, they've no.
1: worked me very hard have here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's a weekend convention, and I have done six panels. Really? Three yesterday and three
1: today. So is that is that it for your panels? Are you finished there? Can you relax I, there I, now? I'm finished or? now,
0: apart right. from needing to turn up at closing ceremonies. So, yeah.
1: so what were your panels
0: that you were on, Cheryl? Oh, goodness me. Can I remember them all? It's all a <laughs> bit of a blur now. <laughs> um... Let's see. Yesterday, um, we, there, there was a panel about um, uh, international um, genre fiction, so talking about uh, trans- translated fiction from various countries around the world, um, which the Irish, of course, are, are quite interested in. I mean, they, uh, they have their own language as well, and they, they very much see themselves as part of Europe, uh, much more than uh, the UK does so they they're quite interested in um you know making uh contacts with uh, science fiction communities in other european countries and of course they they have the euro as well they get a lot of european tourists here and there are um several french people at the convention uh, there's a spanish lady here so it, it it has much more of a an international feel i think than some of the british cons that i go to uh, so we had that one yesterday. Uh, what else did we have? Let's see, it's uh, it's all a bit of a blur. To t- today's I can probably remember um, more easily. Uh, the last panel I was on was um, called Is the Internet Indispensable? Um, which uh, I actually uh, ran up Twitter while I was uh, watching it and got people to... Uh, tweet tweet in whether they thought the internet was uh dispensable or not as well which was was quite good fun uh the panel before that was uh all about um the the panelists were supposed to pretend that they were alien visitors who'd landed in dublin and we have to had to give our impressions of the city (laughs) um and that was my, myself, Juliet McKenna, um, a chap called John Vaughan, who's uh, an Irish writer, and uh, Laura Ann Gilman, who's here from America. Um, we talked the, the most absolute rubbish for an entire hour. You have to be a really good creative writer to be on that panel, I think. Um, coming up with all sorts of uh, odd things as to um, why, we, why we thought Ireland was a very strange place. Um, and then um, prior to that, let's see, I, I listened to a panel with uh, Nick Harkaway on it and a couple of other writers where they were talking about politics in science fiction, which um, generally ended up being a panel about politics rather than about science fiction. But uh, never mind. And then after that, it all just dis- disappears into a, a, a guinness fuel blur and, and whatever. <laughs>
1: Best ones are. Always are. I'm, a, I'm sure you mentioned as well that, that this P-Con didn't. it hasn't got like a dealer room. It hasn't got a few things like a normal...
0: Well, no, it, it's, a, it's a very small convention. They have technically got a dealer room. There's a, a, a room with a, a table in it that has books by some of the attending authors. But there's just one, one dealer. Right. And they also have a room in with a Wii, uh, a N- Nintendo Wii game system. Where they've been running a lightsaber dueling comp- competition, <laughs> and so uh, that's about it. Apart from the two rooms worth of, of panels, um, so there's no like masquerade or art show or anything like that. It's a very small convention.
1: And is this it now? We kind of it's just really, it's finished there now, or, or is there a closing? Uh, no, sound? It,
0: it's still still going on. There are two panels on at the moment. Um, there's a panel on called the Path to Glory in which people like Colin Harvey and Wazam McGann are explaining how to become a famous author. And there's a panel on e-books, at which uh, Nick Harkaway is expounding on the evils of the Google Book Settlement.
1: Right, right.
0: And then at five o'clock, there will be closing ceremonies, and and then it will be done.
1: So is that... I was going to oh, just say. I was just going to say. Is there anything that stood out over this weekend for you that's kind of struck you, struck a chord with you? You know, maybe about the internet or anything like well, that. The, yeah, the the aliens panel was great fun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I enjoyed doing that. Um, and the the beer is very good. The restaurants are very good. Um, and uh, it's the first time I've actually met Nick Harkaway, actually, and, and he and his wife have turned out to be lovely people and, and uh, very good to talk to. So if uh, anybody out there is looking for convention guests, they'd be good people to have along. And the weather has been superb. Um, it's been bright and sunny all, all weekend um, in Dublin.
1: So that's been a lot of fun. Have you had a chance to, to get out actually into Dublin? Have you been in the, I know that sounds um, horrible, stuck in I the hotel all the time? Not but...
0: much of it. What I've been doing is I've, I've been getting up in the morning and, and having my uh, full Irish breakfast.
1: Oh, that's a weird angle.
0: The, the hotel thinks that baked beans are tradi- traditional Irish food, and I've disabused them of that no- notion. Um, but other than that, breakfast is good, and then I've gone out for an hour to walk around Dublin so that I'm not completely bloated for the rest of the day. Uh, they got some good shopping here and whatever. I haven't really had time to hit the tourist spots or anything like that, but uh, it is a lovely city.
1: So have you picked up any freebies? Any like, not freebies, but any, have you bought yourself any books or any trinkets or anything like that inside or anything?
0: Um, well, not inside actually, because, um, you know, so there's only the one dealer table, but immediately across the road from here is a place called Subcity City Comics, uh, which is, is Dublin's premier comic shop. And I've finally picked up a copy of The Complete Dracula by uh, Leia Moore and John Repian, which is uh, a graphic novel that I've been meaning to get hold of for, for some time. So that, that's the um, the only book that I've actually acquired. Um, and I will probably be, be buying some fine Irish
1: chocolates and stuff to, uh, to take home with me. <laughs> So when is home time for you then? When Are you staying tonight at the I'll, hotel? I'll be here or?
0: tonight, yes. I, I get one more chance to um, sample their fine restaurants and then uh, I'm on a... Eleven thirty plane back to Cardiff
1: tomorrow morning. Right. Well, it's funny. I was following your your tweets when you were going there, and it seemed like it gets you, it takes you a while to get there from wherever you live. Do you know oh I mean? yeah.
0: Well, I see. I I live in the, the depths of darkest Somerset, and um, the, it takes quite a while for the native bearers to like carry you all the way up to um uh, to Bristol. You have to like go on a, a boat, pulling your way through the cider swamps and dodging the wyverns and and whatever. Um, so that um, that takes quite a while, and then you have to um, go under the, uh, the the Severn Estuary and on the the tunnel and whatever. And, and of course, there's all the nonsense about supposed to be at, at airports two hours before departure, which, if you're thinking that your train might be late, ends up that you're at the airport three hours before departure. And Cardiff, it turns out, is a very small um, airport indeed. <laughs> Although they, they do have flights to important places like Newcastle, I'm pleased to see.
1: Yeah, there you go, do you know what I mean? Yeah. All roads lead <laughs> to Newcastle. So, Cheryl, we're going to hopefully try and meet up a few times, because throughout this year, you've got so many conferences and, you know, conventions you're going to. Wednesday? I am going to one or two, yes. You, you certainly are, yes. <laughs> when I seen the list, I was thinking, oh man! So when's your next one? When's the next one you're, you're going to? Well,
0: I, next weekend I will actually be in California and there is a steampunk convention on over the weekend, but I'm not sure where, whether I will actually be able to get to it because I will be very busy doing other things. However, the following weekend I will be in Orlando in Florida and I will be at something called the International Conference on the Fantastic in the Arts. It's an academic conference... Um, so most of the people going there are um, they're either lecturers or um, postdoc students or whatever people who are either full-time studying science fiction or who are just learning the trade Um, for a lot of the the young academics there it's uh, a chance for them to start presenting papers in a a relatively friendly and safe uh, environment but also it attracts a large number of writers uh, who basically like the idea of hanging out at a hotel in uh, Florida in March, where it's still like snowy in New York and Boston, but it's lovely weather down in Florida. And we can um, sit by the pool and drink and talk books and um, look after the alligators.
1: Sounds, it sounds lovely.
0: It's, uh, it's a very pleasant thing, actually, and uh, hopefully we'll be uh, able to uh, arrange contact of some sort. It's um, the... Um the internet in the hotel, as I remember from being there two years ago, is is pretty good. So fingers crossed, I will be able to call you somewhere or another.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, yes. Yeah, so hopefully, you know, throughout this year, we can drop by wherever you are in the world. That would be lovely yep. just to get, you know, different. Because I know you're going to New Zealand as well, and you're going to WorldCon in Australia. Yep. You know, you're That's right. Fl- yes. All around the world. Yes, you know. So that will be that would be honestly that would be a lovely just like a little kind of five ten minutes little kind of sample of what what it's like in that you know sure that would
0: be lovely yeah we should manage france and finland as well yeah yes
1: well see it's somewhere like because i went to france last year and that like two years ago now and that was i found that fascinating but to go somewhere like finland you know which i know it's only over it's not that far from uk but it's somewhere where i would never even think of going you know to have you in there and get your perspective on you know finland and science fiction over there that would be lovely sure no problem delighted to do it well, listen, Cheryl, you take good care. Don't drink too much. You.
0: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going very slowly down the pint of Guinness. There's, there's plenty of it left so far. And then I will probably have to have another one to make sure that it was really as good as uh, the first one I had.
1: Well, listen, take care, and we'll keep in touch. And wherever you are in the world again, we'll hopefully meet up. OK, thank you very much, Tony. Take care then, Cheryl. Yep, and you. Bye-bye. Bye. There you go. And like I say, hopefully, we're going to get Cheryl on, you know, because it'll be such a fascinating thing. Like I say, she's off to Finland, she's off to France, to New Zealand, Australia for the World Con. You know, imagine this is the thing. You know what I mean? Just say it. This is my you know, what I mean? like, you know, the sparks were going a while ago. Just imagine. You know what I, mean? I mean, fair enough, we might not get nominated, and, you know, that's the way it's tough. It's tough, blooming, I mean, tough mushrooms. I going to say something else. Look no, steady, my God! With Cheryl on the other end of the phone, no. But if we got nominated, right, and it, it, that would be that would be it, because if we got nominated, and then that's it, you know, you are kind of in that final bit. Well, that would be great to have Cheryl there. And I was saying to Cheryl, just for them last few minutes, you know, you know, when you kind of you walk into the kind of auditorium, so you know, the kind of like the Oscars, you know, they announce the winners, the Hugo's. And Cheryl's on her phone, you know, and everything works out. You know, just before the kind of lights go dark, Cheryl says, right now the lights are going dark, I'll have to go, Tony. That will be gold. Do you know what I mean? That will be so good if I can bring that, you know, onto the kind of starship silver. And then maybe when she's coming out as well. Do you know what I mean? And then, we'll, you know, there's a chance, you know, either win or lose. That, you know, you'll even get the kind of, that my emotions coming out there because either way, I'll be all like kidding in a sweet shop, you know, Knowing if we're in there and the, the kind of Hugo's, my God. But, yeah, man, I'm getting myself carried away. Not even nominations or anything like that. So, that's, that's what I'm planning to do. And that, that would be lovely, you know, if that came off. But we'll just have to wait and see. But no matter which way it goes, I still want to get Cheryl on these kind of observation deck. And, like, just taking, like, a little bit of an insight, you know, into kind of all these different cultures and all these different, you know, the way they kind of celebrate science fiction at their conventions. That's just going to be classic, you know. So I'm really looking forward to them. So there you go. That is Starship Sovas Oral Delights. Like you say, again, let's just, you know, we're on a bit of a high, you know, in all nominations, but Peter Watts is going through his own personal hell. Peter, honestly, I am thinking about you nearly all the time now, just hanging there. Hang in there, please. Until next week, I would just like to say goodnight from me.
3: Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their
0: integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment
4: of Dush Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for us. Airlock will be opened and free.